the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. June 2022 was the second worst month on record for Bitcoin, which dropped 38% in price in just one month. Overall, Bitcoin is down 72% from its all-time high above $67,000 that was set in November 2021. Bitcoin now behaves remarkably similar to the NASDAQ and other risk-heavy indices. Fears of recession, rising inflation, war in Eastern Europe have all weighed heavy on cryptos over the last few months. And then there's been some spectacular crypto implosions, the collapse of Terra Luna and the freezing of withdrawals by crypto lending platform Celsius. Well, what is going on here? Chris Becker, blockchain lead at Investec, joins us once again to unpack all of this and make sense of it. Welcome back, Chris. It's good to have you on the Money with Crypto podcast again. What's behind the aggressive sell-off in cryptos over the last few months? Hi, Kieran. Good to talk to you again. So, yeah, it's been a it's been a vicious few months, not just in the crypto markets, but also general asset classes the more traditional investment assets as well. Um, you know, focusing specifically on, on, you know, the price of something like Bitcoin, um, we've come out of a period where we had massive gains of the price, uh, you know, following lockdowns around the world and further unconventional monetary policies from central banks. And I think there was an expectation or anticipation from the market in general that we wouldn't see the Fed moving to tighten, you know, central banks moving to tighten policy as quickly as they have. Also, I think that's partly because not many people were expecting uh, consumer price inflation to accelerate as much as it has in some of these Western countries where, you know, the CPI inflation rates in America and Germany, for example, is higher than it is in South Africa right now. And, you know, which, which traditional strategists were anticipating and predicting that? Not many. And I think as a result of that, People were kind of expecting that, um, you know, more of this loose monetary policy environment that we'd been accustomed to would continue for longer. And then suddenly that was not the case. And uh, so you've had a vicious backlash in most asset classes uh, to sort of now price in a different reality, firstly, but then also a different outlook for, for not just financial markets, but also economies. I think layered onto this is the you know, in this environment where you're expecting interest rates to remain low for, for very long, people get very confident borrowing money uh, in order to invest in speculative assets. And this is typical of most business cycles. You get, uh, you know, uh, overly optimistic expectations about the future. A lot of those expectations are founded on the availability of cheap credit. The cheap credit is borrowed, it's invested, it creates this nice positive feedback loop in the economy. And when you reach the point where you realize that, well, you know, interest rates may have been manipulated lower than they should have been, and the resources aren't actually available in order to validate all of these investments, you suddenly get the business cycle crash and the recession. And I think that's exactly what we've seen happening in, in, in the price of Bitcoin. People have been getting too optimistic about the outlook for it. Uh, the, the product market fit wasn't quite there for the, the point that we were at. And that was also, you know, driven by excessive optimism because interest rates were so low and money was so loose. 
and people were borrowing money to buy these assets. And the moment the price came back and credit became tighter, it created a sort of negative feedback loop on the downside. So in the same way that the price goes up nicely when money is cheap and people are borrowing to buy something, um, the moment that credit gets tighter and it gets more expensive and you're now forced to sell your Bitcoin to pay back a loan, uh, you know, the price drops far, more, far faster than uh, anybody would have anticipated. And I think that's the key difference in in this the bear market for Bitcoin than we've had in previous cycles. Back in 2018, 19, uh, let's focus maybe on 2018. So in 2017, the price of Bitcoin went from the start of the year from $1,000 to a peak of just over $20,000 at the end of 2017. When the price corrected in 2018, you didn't see the type of credit defaults and credit stress like we're seeing at the moment in the crypto markets. And so this speaks to the fact that the, the thing that's different right now is that people have been borrowing in order to invest in this asset and all of those, you know, more risky behaviors are getting purged out of the system. It is astonishing to think that uh, we'd see a time, and I don't think we've seen this since the 1970s, where inflation in South Africa is less than it is in Europe and in the United States. And of course, that's leading some analysts to say that the Johannesburg Stock Exchange should outperform these markets. Uh, the whole question of what is risk and uh, you know what is a risky asset is now having to be redefined and reframed in some sort of way. And of course, if you look at what's happened with Bitcoin and Nasdaq, there is a very tight correlation. These are both perceived as as, as very risky. Another event that has happened over the last few months is um, actually go, going back about a year or two, the amount of platforms starting up which are offering collateralized lending, where you use your crypto as collateral and you can borrow against that. And we've seen uh, Celsius, for example, announcing that it was suspending withdrawals and transfers to customers. It's got about 1.7 million loans, uh, if I'm not mistaken, on that platform. Maybe just explain what's going on there with, with this and what is Celsius and why is this important? So Celsius is one can think of it as a Bitcoin bank. It's a business that will take deposits in the form of Bitcoin and it's prepared to essentially make loans either in Bitcoin or in, in, in other currencies like dollars using, you know, off the back of the balance sheet that gets created through Bitcoin deposits. Um, typically the model they would also follow is they would take the Bitcoin in as a deposit that use it as collateral in the same way that a, that a house and a mortgage loan is collateral to a RAND loan to buy the thing. Um, they were taking Bitcoin as collateral and making dollars, uh, dollar loans off of the back of that collateral. So you, one can think of it as very much a traditional type of banking business. The big difference, of course, is just the, the asset that they're using to collateralize loans, often denominated in a stable currency like dollars, is far more volatile than a house, the price of a house, for example. And, and so inherently, um, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of risk there. And I think what tends to happen, this is not only unique to the world of, of, of cryptocurrencies, but also in traditional banking and the global fun, financial crisis of 2008 is obviously evidence of this, is in a very strong bull market, perception of risk 
the clients. People become very confident in a certain view of the future and they're not always right. And often they will be too overly optimistic. And once the reality kind of reveals itself, um, suddenly, you know, Warren Buffett had a great, makes a great quote and comment about this. It's to say, when the tide pulls out, we can all see who is swimming naked. Well, what's happened now is that the tide has pulled out and we, re we realize we're in a nudist colony, essentially. Um, so there was a, a huge amount of, of uh, you know, over-optimism, excitement, exuberance uh, priced into these markets, expecting the price of Bitcoin would hit $100,000, for example, this year or next year in the short term. And people behaved in a certain way based off of this, what is now proven to be an incorrect assessment of the future. And so what Celsius was doing is it's, a, it's, a, it's a basically a Bitcoin bank. It was, you know, engaging in lending activities and the value of the collateral has dropped below the value of the loans that they've made. What that means is they're now having to find funding in order to stay afloat. Now, the big difference, of course, between these, these new crypto asset classes and the banking activities of a, the likes of Celsius or BlockFi in them is that there's no central bank that is able to step in and create more of that liability that they're not short on in order to bail them out. And so, so the intensity of the crash or the crisis in the crypto markets is, is severe and the dominoes are falling and there's no lender of last resort able to step in to stop the crisis. And so what we've seen as a result of that is this very severe sudden correction um, in order to get rid of the poor allocators of capital, so to speak, in the space. There does seem to be some contagion effect. Uh, if you look at the, the collapse of Terra Luna, for example, which happened a couple of months ago, and that was about a $40 billion wipeout of value there. Several crypto funds, we now find out, had uh, some serious exposure to this. Uh, is this the start of a crypto winter here? You know, we're you know, bad projects and, and bad decision-making uh, are now being exposed. You mentioned Warren Buffett talking about, you know, the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. Well, are we now beginning to see exactly who's naked? And I guess a follow-on question from that is, will cryptos bounce back stronger and, and better architected as a result of this? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, I think what's what's been very interesting to observe is is the types of models that that have shown to be unstable uh, and have, have kind of broken faster than others. I think there seems to be a lot of um, misinformation, I will say, and confusion around what decentralized finance is. So I'm seeing a lot of criticism of DeFi, which is also known as decentralized finance. It's sort of an acronym or slang kind of term for decentralized finance, is that these businesses like Blockfly or Celsius or even the Terra Luna is being referred to as, as DeFi, but they're not at all. I mean, these are essentially centralized companies with decision makers um, assessing risk and behaving according to the risk assessment that they're inputting into their models. Um, there where there's more human discretion over decision making and risk management, you're seeing the models fall over. Um, so that's what Celsius is. That's what BlockFi is. Terra Luna was very much a centralized uh, essentially governed blockchain that had a super unsustainable economic model where it was essentially uh, creating a currency board, which is a currency that is collateralized by something. 
Um, but that something they were using was a very volatile asset um, being a blockchain's own currency unit being Luna. And the value of Luna was linked to UST, which is the stable coin issued off of the currency. Um, essentially technical speak for a bit of Ponzi, not Ponzi economics. So in a bull market, when the price of Luna is rising, um, you know, the, the value of the liability uh, that it backs uh, is massively over collateralized. But as we know, these assets can fall 90% quite quickly in a bear market. And that's what happened with Luna. And that's essentially revealed one of the earlier weak models, economic models in the space. And the, the dominoes of, of this is other weak economic models are also being revealed. And that's where the likes of BlockFine Celsius is essentially being exposed and they're going bankrupt. So yes, the dominoes there. But I think it's very important for listeners to note is that there are um, systems built predominantly on Ethereum, which I would classify as a purer version or description of DeFi, decentralized finance. And these are um, smart contracts, examples of them being Uniswap or uh, Aave or Compound or MakerDAO that has uh, codified the logic for settlement or lending uh, money markets type protocols without as much human intervention or discretion over how these smart contracts function. And what we've seen is no contagion onto these systems on Ethereum. So the purer decentralized finance economic models, which is codified in smart contracts, have weathered this storm perfectly fine. So if you were a depositor and you were engaging in reckless behavior, you know, um, depositing an asset into Aave and borrowing dollars against it, the moment the, this position became under collateralized, you essentially had to top up your margin or you were liquidated. You were taken out of your position. But the smart contract is still functioning, which is very different to the likes of BlockFi, where the entire business and everyone who's now participated and put money into that business um, is at risk of essentially being liquidated and losing their funds. So that's something that's been quite interesting for me to observe. I think, you know, coming back to your question of coming out of this, this, this bear market, um, you know, are people perhaps going to have more sense around the economic models and, and, and more um, have more insight into which models are more sustainable and perhaps use those more? I think so. I think um, the weak models are being revealed. Uh, the stronger models are standing up in their own right. They're not falling over. And I think for users, for, for customers of this new type of technology participating in this asset class, it's been very revealing to see, uh, you know, which types of models they should be trusting going forward. It's quite fascinating. You mentioned that the decentralized, the pure decentralized finance models were based around smart contracts, which are, you know, as you say, the logic is codified into the system. These are the ones that survived. It's the ones where you had human discretion and human intervention. The centralized finance models are the ones that are falling over. Um, and I guess this really gets to the heart of what blockchain promises, which is transparency at a level never before seen. You don't really see that in the banking sector to the same extent because you've got credit assessments and there is human judgment involved in who gets a loan and who doesn't. Whereas on these pure decentralized finance models, everything is written into the code and uh, is visible for anybody to see. And that, do you now believe that that is going to be the sustainable model going forward? 
Yeah, well, I, I think so. And, you know, it's also important to know that that these, not all of these smart contract systems are created equally either. I mean, uh, what Terra Luna was, was essentially, you know, business logic, uh, economics, backed into a governance model, but the governance model was highly centralized. Uh, some people would have referred to it as DeFi. There were smart contracts involved in the process of minting and destroying UST, which was the stablecoin, um, but it was a far less resilient and, and less robust model than, say, a compound or a MakerDAO. MakerDAO is a smart contract on Ethereum where crypto assets also collateralize a stablecoin, um, but built in a way that's far more robust. It's, it's already weathered the, the, the bear market of 2018-19, came out of on the other side stronger. It's now again been resilient through this severe crash in the markets, um, and so and so you know MakerDAO seems to be a really good model for issuing a stablecoin linked to the dollar that's collateralized by you know crypto assets. There may, however, be a group of people who see the success of the sort of original blue chip decentralized finance projects which I've mentioned a few of, MakerDAO and Uniswap and, and Aave, and create copies or clones of them in the next cycle. And I would say people need to be careful of moving too quickly into the, the, the copies of these systems, particularly because they might, they might create some kind of a token which acts as an incentive for people to participate in. But the developers of those smart contracts might also build back doors, you know, in order to you know, steal money from people that could be scams. And so I would say, yes, I think the codified programmatic implementation of financial services into smart contracts is a good thing. I think it's going to change the way that many institutions offer financial services to their customers over the next few decades. I think the change may be dramatic, um, but in the short term for, you know, People of the public who are wanting to engage in these systems don't necessarily go and fall for some new fancy, interesting model where, you know, they've got a token to try and lure people in, in into them. Stick to the ones that have survived and worked in this cycle would be my sort of general advice. Another thing that does spring to mind, if you look at where do we stand in this whole cycle, Bitcoin, of course, is the... The, the dominant player in the crypto space. And it's dropped below a few key technical indicators, one being the 200-week moving average. Uh, the other one is it's dropped below its cost of production. <clears throat> now, if you, and the cost of production, it varies. It varies between about $20,000 to $33,000. It just depends where you sit on the scale and how much you, you, you bought your mining rigs for. But, what we've noticed in the last 13 years that Bitcoin has been around is that the price doesn't really hang around too long below that cost of production. Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the founder of Bitcoin, he noted, and I'm just going to quote you, the price of any commodity tends to gravitate towards the production cost. If the price is below cost, then production slows down. If the price is above cost, profit can be made by generating and selling more. If that's the case, well, you know, we're kind of now at the, the, the bottom of the production cost cycle and therefore the technical cycle for, for Bitcoin. Well, what do you think about that as a form of logic? Well, I think it's, it's one indicator that might speak to, 
you know, trying to get a fundamental perspective of uh, price or value for an asset like Bitcoin. I wouldn't say it's the, the only input that one should consider, of course, uh, in the same way that looking at the cost of production of gold, which would be a similar analogy, doesn't really tell you about the future price or even whether the present price of, of gold is justified. Um, you know, similarly, I don't think you should be looking purely to the economics of mining uh, for Bitcoin. But I do think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, input that one is able to assess in order to try and figure out whether it's, you know, uh, worth something at the moment and, and where the value might go. All right, looking now towards the second half of the year, it's been, a, it's been a desperate first half of the year. What are the themes, the big themes that we should be looking for in the second half of 2022? Well, it looks like global macro is, is a massive driver at the moment of you know, the price of Bitcoin and other crypto assets. Uh, I think the, the one thing that's changed I would say in the last year, and it's also going back into the, the, the bear market for crypto assets of 2018-19, is that back then people were thinking, well, you know, crypto is an asset class that's completely uncorrelated uh, and not that dependent on what's happening with central banks and inflation and, and other traditional, more traditional markets. Well, clearly that's not the case this year. Um, and so I think the crypto market is likely to take some guidance around what's going on out there in traditional markets. I do, however, also not expect the correlation to remain forever. I think the type of environment that, that something like Bitcoin was built for and is likely to thrive in is an environment of high inflation where we move into a, a, an environment where bond markets, uh, or interest rate markets have been in a 40-year bull market. Since 1981, interest rates around the world have generally been in a declining trend. Okay, inflation has also structurally been on a declining trend for various reasons. Big emerging markets like China opening up, becoming more productive, massive technology gains, a boost to productivity um, was also happening over the last 40 years. And this is all fed into a sort of long-term decline of price inflation and, and that in turn also of interest rates. The environment that we may be going into now after hitting levels on interest rates in the Western world where you saw interest rates that had never been recorded in 5,000 years of history for the first time ever, you had negative interest rates, nominal. You were, you were paying someone to lend them money. Those someones were governments mostly. Absolutely upside down monetary order is the last few years that we've seen. I think we may have moved into an environment now where the gains of the last 40 years of the world opening up and becoming more productive is behind us. Maybe we're going into an environment where you know, economies are less productive. They're focusing more inward. Globalization is on a declining trend. Um, a, a, a political imperative to shift towards higher cost of energy sources, which also feeds through to higher cost of production and prices at a consumer level. And this in turn may mean that interest rates now move into a 20 to 30 year rising trend. What does this mean for global markets? What does this mean for Bitcoin? My sense is, this is very good for something like Bitcoin. 
Um, but what's difficult right now, I would say, for many investment managers and strategists and economists, is the model that has worked for the last 40 years may be in the process of stopping to work. And everybody needs to figure out what is going to work going forward in terms of asset allocation. And I think once everybody's processed through uh, the rubble, <laughs> Uh, they might come to a point where they realize that assets like Bitcoin have a place and the economic models and smart contract systems on something like Ethereum will also play an, a very important role in order to introduce a level of robustness and anti-fragility into a monetary order that is now upside down. It is an interesting fact that you mentioned there, the correlation uh, between Bitcoin and risk on assets, if, you know, you just look at the NASDAQ compared to Bitcoin, very similar kind of trend. Um, and yet Bitcoin was conceived as something quite different. It was conceived, conceived as something which had a hard cap of 21 million coins in issue, unlike the current monetary system where central banks are just printing pretty much at will to keep the, uh, the financial markets afloat. Uh, so I kind of agree with you at some point, it's just when does this correlation break? When do we start to see Bitcoin start to develop a trajectory of its own? And just on that point, I noticed quite a few technical analysts saying Bitcoin is headed towards $100,000 in 2023. And you mentioned previously that this was part of the problem that we had behind this current crash is that people had you know, way too exaggerated expectations for Bitcoin. But behind that, there, there are some serious players who are continuing to bet big on Bitcoin. Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy, uh, he's just bought uh, a bunch more Bitcoin at $20,000. And it might seem bleak looking at the charts, but there are some optimists out there. I mean, Michael Saylor's now got, or MicroStrategy has now got about 130,000 Bitcoin bought at an average price of about Thirty-two, $33,000. So he's definitely below yeah, his, his purchase costs there. Um, is this just another down cycle or uh, are we heading into completely unfamiliar territory? I think the one point that I'd like you to pick up on, which you mentioned earlier, was the fact that this time around, we've seen people going into Bitcoin with leverage positions, and now they're finding themselves having borrowed money to acquire Bitcoin and the expectation will continue going up and up forever, now finding themselves having to sell to, to cover their costs. What do you say about that? Well, is this a normal cycle or is this completely new territory? Well, I think as, as Bitcoin has become uh, more integrated with traditional capital allocators, uh, being asset managers and hedge funds being involved. And as Bitcoin has become a bit more institutionalized and seen more traditional banking-like services built on it, uh, it's, it's seen an introduction of credit, which has changed the nature of the cycle, I would say. And the credit, the credit sort of took on two forms. The, the forms it took on was, you know, um, lend me some money in traditional finance against other collateral so that I can buy some Bitcoin. Uh, and the other model is, let me deposit my Bitcoin with you, use it as collateral, and you lend dollars against me. At certain points, you know, price points in the cycle, different people uh, are underwater on those positions. Um, it, it feels to me like from, from a sort of cycle perspective, we're still in a bear market. 
Um, but we probably, you know, when we speak about sort of longer term asset allocation, even though there might be another 30 to 50% decline in the price of Bitcoin or ETH, let's say, um, the asymmetry and the payoff profile starts to look very interesting. And what I mean by that is you could get another drawdown of a third of the price. So Bitcoin's price goes from 20,000 to 16 or 15,000 or maybe even 13,000. I don't know. Um, but in the, the, the bigger picture, taking a step back and seeing what's going on in the world and the risks that are developing uh, and the type of environment that we're in and the type of technology that Bitcoin is in this environment, um, the possibility that, that Bitcoin works out as a new digital store of value, money on the internet, money in the browser, um, means that the returns over the long term as, as more people start to adopt this technology would dramatically start to outweigh the potential price decline from here. And that means the price could go up many multiples from here, even though it might drop another third in the short term. And so I'm starting to see um, more people getting interested who have felt that they may have missed the boat in investing in this new asset class. There was a huge amount of FOMO last year. People who didn't get in are thinking maybe I should you know, pick up some Bitcoin, very cheap prices. Because in the bigger picture, the, this technology is in a generational adoption trend. And what I mean by that is all new foundational, fundamentally different or unique or new technologies go through an adoption curve. Something like the internal combustion engine went through an adoption curve. Where we moved from as a society before my time, <laughs> went from you know primarily transporting themselves and goods on, on horses and carriages, which had a very specific specific type of infrastructure to service that 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 uh, mode of transport being you know veterinarians and people who would put the horseshoes on the horses and take care of horse refuse and wastes and have methods and processes and, and you know, foodstuffs to feed these things. Um, and the roads were narrower than for a typical, typical automobile. Then the internal combustion engine is invented and it, and it runs on something else, gasoline, fuel, petrol, uh, oil. Uh, suddenly a big allocation of investment capital goes into developing oil fields and refining these products and distributing them and also building wider roads that could handle the weight of a automobile, you know, uh, a car. Uh, and people had to get their heads around now stopping at a fuel station and the risks of that. How do we manage fuel in a tank underground? Lots of change needs to take place. Well, the technology of Bitcoin is undergoing a similar type of massive change where a lot of new infrastructure needs to be built around this thing in order for it to be successful to the majority of the public. Um, these these uh, economic transitions, technology transitions, uh, take on average 50 years to happen. And we're only 10 years into this thing. And so when one thinks about this technology taking its time, slowly becoming adopted throughout society as more and more capital gets invested in order to you know, build the infrastructure around it to make it successful, to make it economically feasible for it to work. Um, you know, we're still in this process of slow adoption. And so one can think of this as a 50-year adoption curve that's underway, a sort of adoption process that's underway. And if that assumption is correct, we're only 10 years into this transition, into this new technology becoming widely adopted, um, but the supply of this thing is capped. 
And what that means is, as we move from a couple of hundred million users, you know, customers of this new technology, people using it, towards a billion or two billion or three, pe- three billion people around the world using this, um, the price may still increase dramatically from here. And so if one takes that view on this, then you know, now is a very interesting time, very interesting juncture, juncture to be thinking about capital allocation towards this new asset and technology system. That's right. I mean, just as a final point here, uh, I think a lot of asset managers have started to pay attention. I I know that because of the, you know, some of the inquiries that we get here at MoneyWeb from some fairly serious players, but they're not mandated to invest yet in Bitcoin, but they are certainly studying it. They're studying blockchain and they're studying the, uh, the, the point, I guess, at which they decide it's safe to go in, and I think that point will be when regulations make it safe. And I think regulations are probably quite imminent here in South Africa. Um, they're certainly starting to unroll in other parts of the world. But it, it, it does lead to another question, is like when, when you have regulation and this becomes just another asset class, uh, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I think the way that Bitcoin was conceived was really as a as an act of uh, sovereignty. It was a strike against uh, you know reckless financial management and tyrannical forms of government. Um, what do you think about that? Well, look, it's. Um, I think there will be be regulation. I think the nature of regulation is likely to be quite different to what, what we used to today. If, if one thinks about money in the banking system, uh, money at a bank is, is a deposit on a bank's balance sheet. Uh, that, that money is essentially uh, recorded, captured and transferred through quite sophisticated spreadsheets. Um, because it's a spreadsheet, as we saw recently in South Africa, as an example, there was a bank called African Bank that created a billion rand in these spreadsheets from nothing and they created money supply from nothing and that caused a massive crisis to to them as a bank, of course. Um, In an environment such as this, you require a lot of regulation to ensure that that banks are not creating money from nothing. You also need oversight and regulation over central banks to ensure that they are also not creating money from nothing, which is obviously something we've seen in our neighbor to the north in Zimbabwe. Um, and, And so there's a lot of regulation an oversight uh, that 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 inherently needs to be imposed on a system such as this. I think it was was unavoidable in a sense. Uh, in 1971, in America, uh, President Richard Nixon at the time cut the dollar off of its gold backing. Money then became this free floating. Uh, unit issued by a central bank, which ultimately derived its value in the credit and, and trustworthiness and faith in, in a government. But also in, in 1971, the first Intel micro, microprocessor was manufactured and this ushered in an era of increasing digitalization. So two things happened 50 years ago. Money is unhinged from something real and scarce, but also it's increasingly digital, which means no limit to its creation. <laughs> and, and so that's been an environment where increasing regulation has been required in order to keep faith and trust in these monetary systems intact. What Bitcoin solves for fundamentally is 
it self-regulates the issuance of the units within the technology system. Fundamentally, a massive technological breakthrough in that we can bring uh, aspects of scarcity of the real world into the digital world now. And, And so that's its innovation. And so what I'm trying to get at here is you don't need to regulate the technology itself where the regulation is likely to go it's likely to regulate uh, businesses building on top of the technology who interface with customers uh, and there are likely to be some regulation around protection of customers. What we typically see happening with new technologies, even if you take the payment card, like a credit card in South Africa as an example, is that the industry comes up with standards that they, they develop by themselves and amongst themselves. And once these standards are established, Established processes of doing things, ways of doing things with the new technology, you'll typically uh, see the regulators following suit to say, okay, those are good processes. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, transcript them into a regulatory framework. And you can kind of look at the, the evolution of, of uh, even the London Stock Exchange. The London Stock Exchange started off trading in coffee shops in London, and they competed with the Bank of England. <sighs> sponsored by the government, the Bank of England had its own stock exchange, but their rules were too cumbersome for traders. Traders migrated to the coffee shops and that's where the LSE was formed and born. And they basically beat the Bank of England stock exchange and the regulations followed suit. And basically the standards that were created by the traders in the coffee shops were the ones that became the standards for traders, uh, you know, on this, uh, you know, kind of a, with a regulated kind of, uh, check uh, of, of, of approval. So what I'm trying to get at, long story, long story to get to the point, um, the standards for this new technology are in the process of being formed. Uh, the regulations are likely to follow suit once new, new processes uh, of doing things is kind of very well established and, and proven to work. The regulations are likely to follow suit. And to make it even more difficult right now is uh, this is a global trend and so a South African regulator, for example, or an American regulator can't regulate in isolation because they're likely to create regulatory arbitrage where this technology runs on the internet, capital moves on the internet, and capital will flow to the places where it's best treated. And so I think this may still take a while before, you know, another decade or two before we see sort of real proper um, conclusive regulations around this new technology in asset class. Chris Becker, we're going to leave it there. Thanks very much. I found that quite an optimistic view because uh, what I really enjoyed was you kind of took a step back and you looked at the, you know, where are we on the cycle of crypto? And we're 10 years into a probably a 50-year evolution of a technology, which is in itself quite revolutionary. You can't compare this to the NASDAQ or anything else like this. this. This is something much more fundamental taking place And it has to do with the technology, the way that we interact, the way that we communicate and the way that we exchange. Great to have you on, Chris. And uh, thanks again. Thanks, Kieran. Good speaking with you. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.